Good to see you, church. Good afternoon. Um, make sure you got a Bible today. We're going to go through um, a lot of scriptures. So if you're if you're new with us, you need to, to borrow one. There are a few at the table back there, so please grab one of those. You'll want that. We're going to talk about um, the importance of unity in the church, and specifically talking about the kind of relationships here that God has given us. Uh, I think. If we're honest, most of us learn about relationships in life. We learn about those things from illegitimate sources. You know, what we see on uh, TV, what we read in books, what we see other people do, particularly around maybe marriage relationships or um, even uh, parents with children. Um, And we really need to remember that um, we've got to go to the source of instruction on relationships, and that's God's Word. Um, and when you look at God's Word, you really can boil down the biblical teaching on relationships to two categories. I think this is helpful um, just to understand this. There's two, uh, really two basic relationships um, that we have. Uh, one is designed for accountability and fellowship, um, and the other is designed for evangelism. So you can kind of see how that is divided, right? Those uh, believers... We're designed to have relationships with one another, to enjoy fellowship, to hold one another accountable. And then everyone outside of the church, non-believers in particular, they're designed for evangelism. That's the whole point of being here. Now, I'm going to only talk about one side of that today, and that is the relationships that are designed for fellowship and accountability, which means the relationships in a, a church. And when you look at the relationships in a church, even there, you can divide that into two covenants, and covenants are important when we understand that. The one is the covenant of grace, and the amazing thing about grace is that grace takes individuals um, from many families all over the world and puts them into one family, the family of God. But there's also the covenant of marriage, another covenant by God, and that takes two people and makes them one. So both of these things are incredibly unique. How can two people become One, well, it's called the covenant of marriage. How can many people from many different families all over the world become one family? That'd be a lot of paperwork, particularly here in Britain. But um, that is the family of God and the unique thing about the covenant of grace. I want to talk about specifically that, the family of God. In fact, why are believers called a family? I I suppose first and foremost, you um, you could look at Jesus because Jesus calls us a family. Um, not too long ago in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 tells us this for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren and the author of Hebrews there really is referring to Jesus' statement in the gospels both in Matthew and in John the resurrected Jesus to the two Marys do you remember that and he goes to them he says don't be afraid go go tell my brethren to meet me in Galilee. I will see them there. He calls them brethren. So why are believers a family? I want to look at that a little bit today, a few points to help set this up. <clears throat> one is this, because we all have one father. Amen. We all have one father. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says this, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing thing. We all become children of one God, one heavenly Father, and that comes through faith in Christ. That makes us a family. We have the same Father. In 2 Corinthians 6.18, Paul is quoting from a a famous covenant found in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel, um, God's covenant to David and to his offspring, and he's 
quoting this amazing thing about this covenant. He says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That must have blown David's mind. You're going to be our father, the father of many uh, offspring of, of, of David. And certainly that is true of us today. Because Romans 8, verses 14 to, to 15 tells us, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we can go, Abba, Father. We have a Father in heaven. Jesus even referred to God as Abba, Father, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we can refer to him as the same. So we're a family because, first of all, we all have one Father. Secondly, because we all rejoice in one name. I hope that's true of you. I hope there's only one name that you truly rejoice in. It's not um, Mickey Mouse. Um, it's not Donald Trump. It's not the king or the queen. We rejoice in one name, and that name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Just as a family name links each member to that family, the name of Jesus is the name that unites all believers together. And it is in his name, in his name alone, that we rejoice couple things about that. Why do we rejoice in the name of Jesus? Why, why should we rejoice? Maybe I should say it that way, in the name of Jesus. Just a couple of points to kind of pull this out for you. First, he's the only object of our hope. And I hope that's true of you. He's the only object of our hope. We, have, we find hope in nothing else and in no one else. He's the only one. And Colossians 1.27 says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul talks about many New Testament things as mysteries because they became a new revelation of things in the New Testament, and this being one of them, that Christ is in you, and specifically Gentiles, and he is the hope of glory. If you remember our study of Hebrews, what is hope? It's the anchor of the soul. We certainly live in a world that wants hope, but uh, is trying desperately to find hope in just about everything but Christ. He's the only object of our, our hope. That's why we should rejoice in one name. Here's another reason to rejoice, because he redeemed us. I hope you understand what that means. Because it does mean one thing. To be redeemed is to be purchased, is to be bought back. And it means this, that you were a slave. You were in slavery, you were in bondage, so was I. But we were slaves to sin. And Christ came and purchased us, redeemed us, bought us out of that lifestyle. And Peter is trying to sort of get this beautiful picture of what redemption looks like when he says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Precious blood of Christ is what purchased us, redeemed us. Another reason that he is uh, the one we should rejoice in is because he intercedes for us. Jesus prays for us. We certainly remember this from our study of Hebrews as well. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is alive and well, and he intercedes for us today. One more point for this. He's coming again for us. We should rejoice in him. We sang about it. He's coming again for us. 
We were running in the half, uh, 10K today, almost said half marathon, felt like a half marathon. We ran the 10K today, and the, the wonderful thing about our Cardiff 10K shirts um, is that, uh, well, they're not 10K, they're just running shirts, but it says our motto on the back, uh, loving God, supremely loving people sacrificially on there. And a lady was weaving her way up to Josh and I as we ran, saying, excuse me, excuse me. And there's lots of people talking. We don't know they were trying to reach us. But another runner actually said, I think this lady needs you. And the lady came up and said, so do you believe in the second coming of Christ? That was how she started this because she saw, I think, well, you know, what better time to have a good theological discussion than while running a 10K? So I said, Josh, why don't you handle this? And um, I just left him. Just took off and uh, that was it. But no, he... uh, had a great discussion with him. And this verse, um, really, I tried to quote to her because she had really heard that. John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's one of the reasons that we have a hope and one of the reasons we rejoice in one name, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a third reason uh, that we are a family of God because there's so strong a family likeness among us. Just look around. We all look the same. Okay, maybe not. But for that one, I want to make you turn to some scripture. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, if you will. Turn to your uh, Bibles in Ephesians chapter 5. What do I mean when we say believers, um, we have a a family likeness? Well, it um, is revealed here. Yep, we have the Holy Spirit for certain. And the Holy Spirit's doing things in us. And the changes that he's making in us is meant to make us look the same, like someone else, (laughs) namely like Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Do you see that? Did you love it when children try to imitate their fathers and they do little things that are mimicking their father? We're supposed to mimic our father in heaven. And here is a great description. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Do you see this? There's a, there's a certain way an imitator of God, being in the family of God, will look. We share a family likeness. We all should hate sin and love God. We all should turn to the word of God as the only source of food for our souls. And we should all go to the only same throne of grace for prayer. I think Paul sums up this, this wonderful uh, unity in Ephesians chapter 4. If you're still in chapter 5, just turn back to chapter 4 and look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There is an amazing family unity enjoyed by believers that that goes deeper than, honestly, even the family unity we enjoy biologically because it's eternal and it's spiritual. However, on that note, there can be union without unity, can't there? And it's so important to God that the church be a unified church, a church of unity. And so I want to look at the priority of unity today. When we speak about being a family, we're speaking about being a unified family, and Scripture makes this unity a priority. 
If you're in Ephesians already, just look at the first three verses. This is our primary text here, and I'll read it, and then we'll pray. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today, and we, Lord, we pray that as we begin to study this very important topic of unity, Lord, that you would, Lord, speak, that you'd make your purpose and will for the church clear, that would see how important unity is, uh, Lord, just even in a biological family, how important it is, and Lord, how much more so to the spiritual family of God. So I pray that you would just open up our hearts for what you want to teach us and show us today, that we might apply these truths to our lives and live lives that truly bring you glory as your children of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, a very simple outline here to begin with some points. I'm just going to go uh, through this passage, but I'm, I'm going a little bit out of order. Not going to start with verse 1 in terms of my outline. Now you'll see why that is. But the first point I want to make is this. You can see this in verse 3 particularly, but is there is a call for peace. The call for peace. And then in verse 3, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to endeavor to do this. Endeavor to hasten to do a thing, to exert oneself, to, to give diligence to. That's work, it's saying. That we need to endeavor to keep the bond of peace, that is something that, that binds something together. Peace is arene there in Scripture. And we're told here that it is a necessary foundational element to a healthy church. We were constantly in Scripture exhorted to peace. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. What an amazing picture of the early church. The church was in these different regions of Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and yet they were all of peace, and they were all edified because of that peace. And you'll see later on how important peace is to the edification of the church. A church truly can't be edified, which is built up, if there is no peace. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, Therefore, let us... Pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. You see that? We've got to pursue peace so that we can, we can look at the things and pursue the things that actually build up one another. How many churches today are just full of chaos, full of backbiting and, and turmoil and arguments? And, 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 and from the very beginning, Scripture it knows our human weakness, knows our our tendency to these things is, listen, please make this the effort. You must be a church of peace because the church must be built up, but you must have peace in order to do that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, it says, finally, brethren, farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. These are Paul's words to this church. And he says, listen, just live in peace. Remember Corinth? <laughs> they weren't a church living in peace. What was their main problem in his first letter particularly? They had divisions. Just nothing but a divisive church. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. They were just all divided. And he, boy, he came down hard on 
division. And what he ends with is this, you need to live in peace. And when you do, the God of love and peace is with you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13 says, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in the Lord for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. There again, Paul's saying peace is such an important aspect. Why? Why is peace so important? I mentioned that peace edifies. Peace builds up. Peace maintains that all-important unity. And there is a call for peace right off the bat here. But notice also, another point, the conduct of the called. This is in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So we're to walk, which is referred to our daily conduct. And Mark wanted to remind us runners today that Scripture says to walk the daily conduct and not to run it. <laughs> but walking does refer to living the daily living conduct of a believer. It says to walk worthy, which has the idea of, of living to match one's position in Christ. What is our position? We're the children of God. We should be living as such, living worthily, walking worthily. If you're in Ephesians, just make a short right turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Right there, Paul makes it clear again. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Do you see that? There's just a whole... Um, purposes here of unity, to be in one spirit, one mind, striving together. He says, listen, you're going to need to have a conduct, or conduct yourselves in a worthy manner for this to happen. And there is a conduct of those that are called. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10 says this, for, those, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Certainly to walk worthy in this sense, we can see here that the knowledge of His will and, and having spiritual understanding is an important thing. That's why it's so important that we study the Word of God. That's so important why we, we make sure we're being fed God's word. Will, um, um, Reese did such a great job at talking about God's will um, and guidance the, um, the other week, and it's such an important thing. We all want to know his will, but really the only way to know God's will is to read it because he's revealed it. His will is, is revealed to us. He does not want us to stumble around in the dark. God's not amused by us sort of blindly, aimlessly wandering around. He has spoken, and he wants us to understand his will and purpose. It's to walk worthy of him. First Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 10 to 12 says, you are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God called you into this kingdom, called you into his family. 
He says, certainly you should walk as one befitting a child of the king of the universe. There is a conduct of those that are called. Now, this is all going to be even more important as we go here, as you'll see, to maintain unity in the church. When we talk about things like peace, peace is so important, but um, uh, to, what, to what price do you go to peace? Can, can you always maintain uh, peace? And how should you maintain peace? That becomes even more important when we look at this third part, which is the criteria of love. People want to go down that road so much with the word love, don't they? Well, the church just should be loving. Well, what does love mean? If you're still in Philippians, uh, turn to chapter 2. I just want to look at the first four verses there. There is a criteria of love called for from Scripture. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is all done in the name of love. And unity, notice that we should be like-minded, having one mind, being of one accord. How do we do that? By having the same love. The same love of whom? Christ. Absolutely. There is the criteria of love. We're called to be loving. Absolutely true of believers. In fact, look at Colossians. If you're in Philippians, just make a right-hand turn to another of Paul's epistles. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Here's another description of um, God's children. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love which is, here it again, the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. You notice how much here these, these words are, are pointed to our tendency to not want to act that way with other people? Be tender. Oh, I don't want to be tender. It'll be kind. I'm not wired that way. Well, be humble. I'm not a humble person. I would start to question, well, hmm, Where's the Spirit of God working in your life then? I'm not meek. I'm not long-suffering. We're to bear with one another. We're to forgive with one another. And all of this, ultimately, so that we can put on the bond of perfection. Love. Seal it with love. Protecting the church. We're one body, he says there in verse 15. Remember, Jesus gave a new commandment. I just love that to the disciples. <laughs> a new commandment I give you. Oh, I've just tried to memorize all the other commandments. You gave me a new commandment. It was an easy one for them to remember. You love one another as I have loved you. Wow. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. What does this mean? How do we do that? Well, let me take you to one more. 1 John chapter 4. You've got to go near the end of your Bibles there. 1 John chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 7 to 11. 
1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is of God. There it is. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this, the love of God, in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love is so important. But what does it mean to, to love? Do we love everyone in the church by letting them do whatever they want? Just come on in and just, just act whatever. No, we just covered some of that, didn't we? There is a conduct of the called. This conduct that is befitting a believer, a child of, of God. And one important passage I want to take you to here, you, it'll put on the screen for this one. It's 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the what? the truth. There is a conduct, he says, and there's a, a conduct befitting a believer. How to conduct yourself in the house of God, in his house. This is his house. He's our father, and we're all one family, and there's one way that we should conduct ourselves because the church is the church of the living God. It's the pillar and ground of truth. So important. So how do we do these things. Well, that's what I want to spend the, mo the rest of the time on here. That's just a quick little outline from Ephesians uh, chapter 4 there. But how do we <laughs> do these things? How do, we, how do we exercise love? How do we maintain peace? How do we do these things at the same time understanding that, well, okay, there's sin that can come in the church, and how, how does this happen? A couple points I want to give you today, and these are hopefully going to be very practical for you. We need to exercise proper judgment, okay? Exercise proper judgment. Contrary to very popular belief, <laughs> Christians are to judge. I know people like to say Christians aren't to judge. Absolutely the opposite. Christians are to judge. I'm going to take you to a couple passages, but I want to start with the Gospel of John chapter 7. I told you we'd need your Bibles today. We're jumping around a bit. <clears throat> John chapter 7. What kind of judgment then are we to use if we are to exercise judgment? Well, Jesus uses it here and he gives it to us in John chapter 7, beginning in verse uh, 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it was from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, 
not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? And here it is, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus did what in that moment? Judge them. <laughs> That's what he did. Because they were judging him. They were judging him for healing a man on the Sabbath because for them that was violating the Sabbath. Jesus just worked. It's more important to, to honor the commandment and not work rather than make a human being whole. And he says, you're not judging with righteous judgment. Christians are to judge. And when I say exercise proper judgment, the term that you can use with others, should they ask you, is it's righteous judgment, although they might not like that word very much. But we are to judge. So the first point here is we do judge. We do judge. What do we judge? Well, firstly, we should judge sin. It is the responsibility of the church and particularly the leaders of the church to identify sin in the church and hopefully correct that or purge it. That is from God. Because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, and you certainly cannot have untruth violating the truth. To take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, people who think that churches shouldn't um, bring up sin, address sin in the church, well, Paul certainly had no qualms with doing that. And you have to remember that these letters that they wrote, they would have been gathered together much like this, and they would have been read out loud. And I'm sure when this section of the letter was read, there was not a soul in the room who didn't know who they were talking about. <laughs> that person probably just sort of sunk down into their seat. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13, Paul is dealing with sin here. He says this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So he had made some comment in his first letter, you need to not keep company, and they thought that meant with anyone in the world. He said, well, gosh, to do that, you'd have to like live in Pluto or something. You couldn't do it. But now I have written to you in this letter we're reading not to keep company with anyone named a brother. A what? A brother. Family. Named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who, are out, who also are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Outside and inside what? The church, the family. That's what he's talking about. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Boy, that's pretty, pretty clear and pretty direct. And, and no, it sounds harsh. He says, listen, if there's a person that is in sin and they're not coming out of that sin, you need to deal with them. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'll just put this one on the board. Verse 6 says this, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. And then further down in verse 14, he says this, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. There is a point, he says, where when, when they refuse to listen, you've got to withdraw yourself from them. The point is so that they will be ashamed and, and, and hopefully come on back. 
Matthew 18 is probably one of the most well-known passages in terms of this and how to deal with sin in the church and a sinning brother. And listen, we don't mean to say these things to say none of us sin. Well, we all sin. It's not to say that the church is perfect and holy. We stand in a position of holiness, yes, but am I holy? No. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But Matthew 18 says this in verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector." You see the steps that are meant to be taken here to really to call someone back to godly, a godly conduct, a godly life. Go to that person individually. Well, take another couple people. Well, then, then take it to the church so that the whole church would say, listen, go after this person. You know, they're, they're going astray. Not to go out and, 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 and berate them and say, you're going astray and we love you. You're of our family and we don't want you to harm yourself. Come back. God is gracious. He will forgive you. That's the whole point here. But all of that is, does that not mean we judge sin? You have to say that a person is in sin. So people are very, very wrong when they say Christians are not to judge. We are to judge righteously. We're to judge sin. We're also to judge sound doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. We have to be careful about doctrine. We're to be protective of doctrine. This lady who ran up to us, the reason she asked about the second coming of Christ is that her mother is a Jehovah's Witness. So she didn't believe any of that and said, well, this is what I understand and this is what I understand. Obviously, didn't know the Bible. So we just kept quoting scripture. Oh, this is what the Bible says and this is what the Bible says and this is what the Bible says. um, That's what we have to do. Well, what you've heard is incorrect. Well, that's got to be a shock. Well, well, but they, they teach the Bible. I said, no, they don't. They teach the Watchtower magazines. <laughs> That's what they teach and what they have written. But they don't teach the Word of God. We'd be very careful about doctrine because doctrine and a division of our doctrine can bring in, um, uh, can break that unity, can break that bond of peace. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 11 says, There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, these passages here in particular identify people who are really out to get their way, are really out to cause division. And that's what we have to be careful of there. But we do need to protect doctrine, protect the truth of Scripture, Basically, the fundamentals, the fundamental things, like we went through in the summer, the fundamentals of the the faith, to have a person running next to us saying, well, but Jesus isn't God. Well, we would have to correct that and say, well, but he is. (laughs) He is God. His word tells us that he is. We must judge 
sin, and we must judge whether something is false in terms of doctrine in the church. So what don't we judge? Here's a couple things to not judge. One is we're not to judge hypocritically, meaning we're not to go to somebody and judge them on the very same thing that we're doing. We can't judge hypocritically. It's the uh, log in our own eye when that person has a speck in theirs. I'll take you to Matthew 7 and just fly through a couple of scriptures here to, um, uh, to get through this here. Matthew chapter 7 is where you'll find some of this. This is the, this is the passage that people will quote um, uh, less than half of it, and then they'll just stop when it suits their uh, needs here. But this is what Scripture actually says. Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged. And then that's all you hear. Well, the Scripture says, judge not that you be not judged. Oh, does it? Oh, it does say that. And then in verse 2, and I just keep going, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So don't judge hypocritically because you're going to receive the same. But do you judge? Yes. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. I just love that. Isn't that funny? You've got a two-by-four sticking out of your head. <laughs> Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Wait, so wait, if I remove that plank, then I still do try to remove the speck from their own eye? So then I do judge, but just not hypocritically. And then they don't want to go to verse 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And certainly there takes some amount of judgment to judge between a pearl and a swine and all those things. So um, obviously we've got to read this and understand what scripture is saying. Skip ahead to verses 15 to 20 there. It talks about this some more. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from their thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So then, do I need to be a good judger of fruit? I would need to be a good judger of fruit. So you see how they read one verse out of the whole chapter? We do judge. We just don't judge hypocritically. Another area we don't judge, and that is an area of weakness. And this is a very important one. I want to take you to Romans chapter 14, which is a primary passage on this. What does it mean? When I, what do I mean when I say weakness? People that are just physically weak? No, that's what we're talking about. But really speaks about the spiritually mature versus the spiritually less mature. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Receive one who is weak in the faith. Okay, there it is. But not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge who eats, for God has received him. There you go, so both sides. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Skip it down to verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Down to verse 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may 
edify another. So there is the whole reason this is, this, this is being taught here. It's, it's peace we're looking for. And he sums it up in verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. We're not to judge over uh, weakness. The threat to this unity arises when a mature, a strong uh, believer conflicts with immature, uh, weak believers. So how do you how do you do this? This is another quagmire, isn't it? This is hard. How do you, how do you get out of this area? Here's a, another point for you. You want to exercise deference over preference. Deference over preference. Not what I prefer, but I'll defer to you. Boy, that's hard to do. But that's how we maintain peace. Exercise deference over preference. Romans 12.10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another that's what that's the point there we prefer we 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 prefer to give over to them you know what if meat makes you stumble and boy i love meat, i'm just not going to eat meat around you because it makes you stumble that's deferring to them because you love your family galatians 6 10 says therefore as we have opportunity let us do good to all but especially to those who are of the household of faith why because it's our home we have one father were family. I remember my first day on my own in children's ministry when I was coming into to ministry for the first time. It's a lot of kids, a big, big church. And so we printed out these little labels with their, their number, like a number on them, like a number system so that parents could go, oh, my child's number four. And I'm a, well, I had, a, I had a guy in there that was just livid that we put a number on their child. Just absolutely furious. You know, so my first day, I get a call. Uh, Kevin got an upset parent. I'm like, oh my gosh. Go out there. The dad's got his son there. He's like, come here. You put this number on my kid? Not me personally, but yes, we put numbers on the kids. Don't you know what the Bible says about numbers? I was like, there's a book called Numbers? Like, I just, I had no clue what he's talking about. But somewhere in his mind or his theology or whatever, there was something evil or wicked or whatever about putting a number on a child. Now, in that situation, it's good to sit down there like, all right, well, let's just go discuss this theology, let's go through all this, and like, no, instead said, hey, you know, what would work for you? What could we, what could we put on there, just to keep secure and all that? And guess what? It was, it was fine from that day on. Perfect. You know, no big deal. Um, for me, it, it, I recognize, oh, okay, this is, this is one of those situations where maybe I don't understand this person, and maybe I'm thinking like, this guy's wacky, but um, I'm going to defer to them. You, what would you like? I won't, you know, we'll, we won't break the whole system. We're not going to change for everybody else, because, you know, 99.9% .9 of the church is fine with the numbers, but what can we use for you? And we came up with something else. That's the idea there. But let me give you a couple points to help with this. One is to don't cause stumble, stumbling. We don't want to cause people to stumble. Don't cause stumbling. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, great place to go to. If you want to turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 gives us a, a breakdown here of, of how, this might, how this might look, um, just like we read a little bit in Romans. You don't want to cause your brother or your sister to, to stumble. And what we mean is to stumble in the faith. And a key point of this is the, is the conscience, what we'll get, we'll get to here, but you don't want to cause them to stumble. Verse 1 says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now he's, he's saying here, listen, I know and you know that there's, n there's nothing in an idol. 
An idol is nothing. It's, it's a piece of, of concrete or wood. It's just nothing. And I have that knowledge, but ultimately knowledge puffs up, but it's love that edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things that have been offered to idols, think about that. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there's one God, the Father of whom are all things. And we, for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat or are we better, nor if we do not eat, are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brother and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That is pretty incredible. Paul said, if, in that, if that happened, I just wouldn't touch meat because I wouldn't want my brother whom I love to stumble. In Luke 17, Jesus says this, that he said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. He said, listen, offenses are going to come. It's impossible that you can avoid them, them all. But woe to, to the one who, who, who's the one that causes those things. We are trying to maintain unity in the church. And the last thing we want to see someone do is to stumble because of how we've treated them or, or what, we've, uh, what liberty we've um, engaged in. So don't cause stumbling. And the second one, this is the last one, don't harm the conscience. Don't harm the conscience. He addressed it there a bit, but let me take you to uh, the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll, we'll end looking at that one. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 to 29 here. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Okay, so I love that. Basically, meat eaters, <laughs> clear road. So listen, there's no problem. It's been offered to an idol. It hasn't been offered. Go eat it. It's meat. It's all from the Lord. Just eat it. But here we go. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you asking no question for conscience sake. All right, so uh, 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 an unbeliever who you want to evangelize invites you to dinner and they serve you this wonderful platter of meat that's been offered to idols, right? He's saying here, listen, don't even ask any questions. Eat it. You just eat it because you're trying to win a soul here. In the end, it's just food. He says, so let me just tell you, God gave it all to you. Evangelism is the priority in this situation, so eat it. 
I remember Pastor Chris telling me a story going to China. And they were out into a village in this little, little nowhere place. And he went with the youth pastor at the time. And they went to this little hut. And this guy cooked up all the little grubs and things there. And, and then they gave him some kind of sake kind of, you know, thing, which Chris does not touch alcohol at all. Danny next to him was like, you know, and just slubbered down. And Chris was like, oh, my goodness. He's like, I, and Chris was like, He's like, you know, 1 Corinthians 10, <laughs> you know, if they, they serve it to you, eat it, brother. And so Chris did, and he told that story later. He's like, I, you know, I was thinking, okay, I don't want to offend this guy because he's given me everything he has, and I want to be gracious to him. So that's the situation. Eat it, all right? Just do it. Now look at verse 28. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of who? For the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Same scenario, Pastor Chris and the youth pastor. The youth pastor eats it all, right? Or vice versa, maybe Pastor Chris eats it all. And the youth pastor's like, hey, that's an offer to idols. And he just come out of some new age idol worship thing. And he's like, I, I just can't do it. Now what do you do? He says, who do you prefer? Do you prefer the man who graciously opened his house and gives you the food? Or do you defer to your brother? Your brother here. Do you see that? Why do you think that is? Who is going to want to be in a household, a family of God, when you don't even love your brother? But in that situation, we go, you know what? I just can't because this is my brother in the faith, and this would cause him to stumble, and I just can't do that. And then you leave the results to God. Conscience, he says in verse 29, I say not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks... Why am, I evil, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So a wonderful passage helps us with this understanding. How do we do this? Well, we don't want to cause people to stumble, and we've got to be very, very careful about conscience. Now, let me just say something on uh, that. Obviously, the, 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 this is referring to people who are coming out of pagan idol worship, pagans, gods, they're not real but the wicked practices that were associated with them are. And these people had just come out of that paganism and they just they couldn't have anything in contact with anything that was associated with that. It just brought them all back to that. So their, their consciences were not yet strong enough to allow them to eat that food that had been sacrificed to the idols that they once worshipped. So if, if such persons, following example okay, of more knowledgeable believers, they go ahead and they go, okay, well, I guess I'll just eat it but they're not comfortable doing that, then they have defiled their weak conscience. And what you don't want to do is, is give people the practice of, of defiling the conscience, ignoring the conscience, because God gave us the conscience to help us determine between right and wrong. If you teach them to ignore that, to defile that, then you actually cause them to sin, and that's where it becomes a danger. All right? He who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23 says. So defiled conscience ends up being a defiled faith. You can be very careful about that. Very careful. So what? Let me just end here with a couple of verses for you. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We're considering one another. And obviously not forsaking assembling of ourselves together. We're, we, we come uh, together. But we had to consider one another. And I found six questions to be a helpful thing in my life. I'm going to give these to you if you can jot them down. If you're not sure, you're in a situation, you're not really sure how to handle it, what decision you should make, these six questions are great things just to ask yourself 
that should help you go um, kind of go forward and make a decision that would be honoring to the Lord. The first question is this, is it necessary? Is what you're about to partake of, what event you're about to go to, or what you're about to do, or drink, or eat, or whatever it is, is it a necessary thing? Like, do you, do you have to do this thing? Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let me say that again. Run with endurance the race. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. No, still walking? Still walking. Okay. Um, but lay aside weight. If it's an extra thing that you do need it, running a race, just lay it aside. Maybe you don't need it. Second question, is it helpful? Is it a helpful thing in your walk? Is it a helpful thing in your growth to you? 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Will this help you? Or is this something that has the potential to bring you under its dominion and power? Be very careful about it. You may have lawfulness to do it. It may not be helpful to you. Third, is it Christ-like? Is it Christ-like? 1 John 2, 6 says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Might even just bring that into the same idea of the family of God. Is that something that would honor uh, God our Father as his children? Fourth, is it a good testimony? Think about those that are outside. Is it a good testimony to those that are watching you partake of this or whatever it is you're, you're doing? Colossians 4, 5, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. Fifth, is it edifying? There we go. There's the word we've been looking at. Is it edifying? Will it build someone up? 1 Corinthians 10, 23, which we read, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. They don't all build up. So will this thing be edifying to others? And the sixth and final one, is it glorifying to God? And as we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is it, is it going to give him glory? So hopefully those six questions will help you. Um, unity in the church is so very, very important. And it is a priority. We need to maintain peace. We must exercise love. Um, but at the same time, we have, um, we have uh, freedom in Christ. And exercising those freedoms sometimes can, can cause difficulty. So hopefully these things will help you. Um, and just in a very practical way, any questions, certainly feel free to come up and, and ask me. Let me just pray, and uh, we'll get the kiddos. God, thank you so much for giving us this time in your word. We thank you for the clear uh, instruction from your word about the importance of unity, Lord, that we maintain uh, peace and that we strive to love one another and that there's a certain conduct that is becoming of a believer in the church. And Lord, that we want to strive to do all these things at the same time, Lord, how do we address sin and how do we address doctrine and these things? So Lord, just pray that this has been helpful to your people and encouraging. Lord, we pray your blessing upon the church as uh, Lord, we continue on wanting to see unity in our church, wanting to preserve that at all costs. Lord, would you help us by your Holy Spirit? We want to glorify you. It's your, your house and it's your family. You're our father and we love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.